First John chapter 4, will you stand as we read God's word this morning? All read out loud. You read in your head. First John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, reading through verse 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for the love, love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is Love In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son to the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Pick it up in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know him to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever has fear has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Turn and greet one another, and then we'll get to God's words. Excellent, great, thank you. Gray, grab a seat. Excellent. God's word is awesome. Figured it would not go well to say we should love our brothers and then not greet the image bearers sitting next to us. Well, we um, come to our study of uh, 1 John this morning. Uh, working, we'll not so much look at verses 7 through 11 as we did last week, but really verses 12 through 21 is where we're going to be focusing this morning. In which in this, in this, uh, in this passage, there is an interesting phrase. Perfect love. Perfect love. What would perfect love look like? What would it feel like? If you had perfect love, what would you do? What would it feel like to be loved in a perfect way? Have you ever experienced, I think perfect love could be stated this way. Perfect love would be the experience of love that is so great that it actually has the power to change your life. 
So we're not talking about just the, the person who randomly just says, I love you on the streets or just kind of, they're just, they come from those families that just say, I love you to everybody. But this is the love that changes your life, that changes your very activities, that changes your desires, that changes the way you think. That's love that has had incredible effect. What does perfect love mean? It means a love that changes us not to be perfect. That's not what it means. Not that you would, you would be loved into perfection yet, but a love that changes the way you live and act and the way you think. It's important that we understand this, that we're not after a perfection in our love. But perfect love, what it means here, in the way the Bible often, the word that undergirds this word perfect in the Greek is the word tetelotai, which means accomplished or fulfilled or complete. And so what we mean by perfect love is we mean love that is brought to fulfillment. It is a complete love. There's not something missing in it. It means it goes beyond mere feeling. Right? You can feel loving to somebody, and yet there's a disconnect between the feeling and the action. So what is John talking about here is the love of God that is completed in us, that accomplishes a work in us, that fulfills its mission within us. And so how does that happen? That's what John is talking about this morning. How does love become complete in us? How does it become perfect in us? We'll look at it under three headings this morning. The love of God is perfected in us. We'll talk about it as if it's steps of sorts. Or like a, 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 tr- a fruit that is growing, a tree that is growing. It begins this way. The love of God is perfected in us beginning with abiding. Beginning with abiding. That word abide, what does it mean to abide? I, I, for, I personally, I, I find the word abide to be very confusing, and yet it's all over the New Testament. I think it's very difficult to get, I find it very difficult to get a sense of this word. But I'll give you kind of a, a raw definition of it, and then we'll, we'll, we'll dive in. We can define abide this way, is that abide is to continually live in. You continue to live in something. It has connotations of remaining or being settled in a place. That's what it means to abide. But I'd say abide means more than that. The sense of it is more than simply that technical definition of the word. I think in some ways you have to feel the word in the way the New Testament uses it. You see, the abide in the way the New Testament uses it isn't simply a place that you reside, but it's a place that is life-giving to you. That it's a place you reside and you stay at and it gives you life. It is more than simply living in a place but it's actually a longing to remain there because it gives you life to be there. I just said maybe the best way to illustrate or understand abide would be to illustrate it in this way. That you live in a house, but you abide in a home. You live in a physical structure called a house, but you abide in a home. You ever been on a long trip? You've been away from your home, your bed for a long time, and you get back. And it's not simply that you're like, you love the feel of your sheets. There is something about you that you get home that you can finally rest again. I this experience as part of my own testimony and God's walk and work with me is I went away to college my freshman year as a great Christian kid who had been a leader in his youth group and was very successful in the very small Christian world in which I existed. And my freshman and sophomore year, for about a year and a half to 20, 20 months or so that I lived away from home, I, God was like a bull in a china shop of my idols. And he decided to take a lot of the things that I loved and cherished, that I loved and cherished more than him, away from me. 
And I became angry and I became upset. In fact, I, I moved back to my hometown. Oddly enough, it was the first year in which I worked in full-time ministry as a 19-year-old. I was the youth pastor of a church, about 150 youth, a fairly significantly sized church. And I was living away from my parents. And I literally, though, I was kind of homeless. I didn't have a place to live. I didn't want to move back home. I thought that was, you know, I've already been away at college for a year. To leave, move back home, that wasn't, I didn't want to do that. And so I bounced from place to place doing house-sitting jobs. I literally lived in my office for a couple weeks in the church on, a, on like an old army cot. And so literally I was homeless in that way and then I didn't have a place necessarily to rest my head consistently. But more than that, I was homeless. But that year of my life, after God had kind of taken a lot of things from me, I was exhausted. I was spiritually withering on the vine. I wasn't doing well. And that December, I finally went back to my parents and I said, I need to come home. And it wasn't the fact that I needed a bed. I could find a bed. It wasn't I needed a bedroom or air conditioning. I needed a home. I needed, I needed life. The first trek out of the house had kicked me around enough. And I needed to go home to a safe place. A place where I could begin to thrive again spiritually. Where I could be provided for and cared for and recover. And it didn't take long, but home Home was, did that for me. It was a place I could go to and rest emotionally, spiritually. That's the difference between, that's what abiding is. That you abide in God. Therefore, what John is saying here is the place that you're abiding, the place where you find rest, the place that gives you life, is what does it say? It's this amazing word, abide in the love of Christ, he says. But that's an amazing idea. How do we abide in love? Well, understand there's a two ways to this, abiding in love. First, you have to recognize this, is if you are ever to abide in God, you have to first recognize that he is, it's the, he's gonna make the first move, that he comes first to abide in you. It says, it says this in verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Why? Because he has given us his spirit. His Holy Spirit comes to live in us. And how are we supposed to know the Holy Spirit lives in us? Is there like a Holy Spirit Geiger counter that you can kind of put up on against your chest and it like, it's like tick, 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 and you're like, oh, I have, a, I have a sixth measurement of the Holy Spirit today. Like, that's really good. How do, how do you know? Or like, you know, like a pregnant person, you know, a pregnant woman feels that there's a baby in her tummy. Like, you feel, feel a Holy Spirit kick? Oh, he, he kicks. Is that how we know the Holy Spirit's there? And we abide in his love. Here's what it says in verse 14 and 15, how you know the Spirit is with you. Because as we have seen and testified that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, and whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. See, this points to the very purpose of the Holy Spirit. The point, the purpose of the Holy Spirit, his ministry, is to invade your life, to come and live inside of you, and his job is to function as a sign. The number one job of the Holy Spirit is to point to point your heart and your mind and your affections and your life to what? To confessing in the work of Jesus. You know the Holy Spirit is inside of you and you know that you abide in God when you trust in Jesus. When you look at what Jesus, his work is, the, the person and work of Jesus, when you look at it and say, that is the one. He's the one who saves me. I trust in him. We know Jesus is the Father's Son. Now, how do we know that? What's the story that he's pointing us back to? He's, the Holy Spirit is pointing us back to the gospel. And in particular, there's two aspects that he's pointing back to here in verses 14 and 15. First is the incarnation, that the Son of God took on flesh 
And not only that, but then he went to a cross to be the savior of our sins. That you know the Holy Spirit, that God abides in you, that the Holy Spirit is in you when you come to trust and believe in Jesus as your savior. That he has come to take on flesh, to invade this world and to die for you. So the Spirit abides in us and comes and lives in us and makes this presentness known to us by revealing to us the incarnation and the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's the, that's the first act. God moves into us. He doesn't give you an option. He becomes a roommate in your house, and he doesn't ask. And you know he's a roommate in your house because suddenly you start going, this Jesus, I want to trust him. I see what he has done for me, and you proclaim it to others. But the second, there is a movement that you have, because we are commanded to abide in God's love. How do you abide in God's love? The Holy Spirit invades in you first, that's the first thing, but then we participate in the abiding of God's love. And I think, again, the best way to understand this is through an illustration. There is a difference between being hugged and hugging and entering into an embrace Right? Have you ever had the experience of when somebody hugs you and you weren't ready for it? And your arms are kind of there and you're like this, like kind of, they're twitching. That, or, or it's somebody, have you, I, we have to do this with our kids. After they get in a fight and we tell them, all right, Cade, Lila, Lila, okay, could you hug him? They apologize, they've asked for forgiveness, right? And, and Cade, sometimes here's how the hug goes for Cade. It seems like a limp noodle. <laughs> like... Lila's hugging him, and, and, and okay, that would be only one side of abiding. An embrace is something different, right? That God's love may have taken hold of you, but your act of participation in abiding in that love is that you move in like somebody who is weeping. And in which you've been embraced first, but you cling. You grab hold of the one who is hugging you, and, and you pull them towards you, but more than that, you fall into them. The abiding place is the loving breast of God. That that would be the place. That's what it means to abide. You've been hugged, but you participate in it. That you draw, you pull yourself into it. And therefore, if the way you know that God is hugging you is the incarnation of the cross, how do you think you move into and fall into the embrace? that you actively participate in this abiding by moving into that story. Here's what I mean. This means moving into the embrace of God by the Spirit is that we meditate, that abiding is, takes on this practice of meditating on the life and death of Jesus. That's what the Gospels are there for. And that's why we want to be a gospel-centric church because we think each week, week in and week out, you guys come in the church like this. And that you need to be compelled by the fact that this unbelievable thought that there is a God who has embraced you and he loves you and that you need to fall into it, abide in and meditate upon that embrace, what he has done for you. And here's what I would say. Meditation involves imagination. Particularly for you, like some of you, like the raw stats of the gospel, if you're a young believer, it still amaze you. But for some of you, you need to give it some thoughts. You've got to get under it. You need to use your imagination again. Think about a, a child, what they, they, they do with a children's book. And when they love a book, they, what do they do? They reread it over and over and over again. Why? Because they're, what they do is they begin to imagine themselves in the story. There's aspects of the story that come alive to them. There's pictures that become more real to them. They want to read it again and again. So would you use your imagination? 
to walk through the aspects of the gospel once again, to realize the reality that when Jesus comes in, all those stories of the gospels, reread them with an imagination. When you read the story of Jesus breaking bread, you watch him take bread and a cup and he gives it to you. You agonize with him in the garden. You get a sense of his, his weeping in the garden. You watch him be hit and you watch him be spat upon. You imagine those things. You think about them. You stumble with him under the weight of the cross. You sit under the cross and see him die. You hear the centurion say, surely this is the son of God. Would you reread the gospels? Would you meditate on what God has done? That's the whole point of why we looked back even last week. Would you actually study theological concepts that are drawn out in the scriptures? We said this whole idea of propitiation last week. Some of you need to study theology because the whole reason of the New Testament is to give you these great understandings to engage your mind. It's actually engaging your imagination. That's what your mind is. To reimagine, to thinking about in unbelievably clear and profound ways what God has done for you in the work of Jesus. And when you begin to abide, when you meditate on the gospel, you begin to believe the love God has for you. That's the Christian life that you would grow to believe that, that what, what seems unimaginable, you'd grow to believe that it's true. It actually says this in verse 16, right? So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. The greatest issue in your life is you fail to grasp the love that God has for you. That that is what your daily devotional life is to do, is to open up God's word and say, I need a reminder. Remember how we ended last week? A little kid says, you need to tell people you love them because they forget. They forget. And the, the goal here of abiding is to come to a place. It's the connecting point between the theology that we looked at last week, the love of God proper, all that stuff that's there in the scriptures. And abiding is you say, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna just marinate in that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna embrace it. Until it begins, I believe it and I know it. That's what Paul longs for with his people, for those that he cares for. That's what John longs for. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 3, 18 to 20. Let's, let me show you where Paul makes this point. He says this, I pray for you. And what does he pray? What does he pray? That you may have strength to comprehend. That's to know, to believe, to, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with what? The fullness of God. The fullness of God. So let me just give you again an example of what this might look like. Psalm 103, you can do this from the Old Testament too. Psalm 103, verse 11 says this. King David said this, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love, never changing love for those who know him. Think about that, just that phrase. As high as the heavens are above the earth. Let's take, for those of you maybe, I'm not much of a science guy, but there was a book read by Mark Batterson called The Circle Maker. And here's what he says in that. To get to the edge of our galaxy, the Milky Way, traveling at the speed of light would take 100,000 years. Light travels at 186,282.2 miles per second, which is so fast that in the time it takes to snap your fingers, light has circumnavigated the globe half a dozen times. Traveling at that speed, it would take you 100,000 years to get to the end of our galaxy. And astronomers believe that there are close to 80 billion galaxies in the universe, which amounts to more than 10 galaxies per person, most of which are way bigger than our Milky Way. 
To go, get to the edge of our universe, they say, if you were traveling at the speed of light, it would take you 15.5 billion years. Now take that scientific knowledge and ram that into that phrase. He loves you as far as the heavens from the earth. In other words, it's a scientific way of saying it's endless. It does not end. That you would, you would meditate on that that's abiding, reflecting on this. Richard Baxter, for those of you who like something from a Puritan instead of from a scientist, he says this, is it a small thing in your eyes to be loved by God, to be the son, the spouse, the beloved, the delight of the king of glory? Christian, believe this and think about it. You will be eternally embraced in the arms of love, which was from everlasting and will extend to everlasting. Of the love which brought the Son of God's love from earth to heaven, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to glory, that love which was weary, hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, beaten, spat upon, crucified, pierced, love which fasted, prayed, taught, healed, wept, sweated, bled, and died, that love will internally Embrace you. Abide. Abide. Abide in the love God has for you. Something happens when you abide, though. It does something in you. And moving towards perfected love, it isn't that you're just brought to tears, although it, I hope it would do that. In your devotion, it, it, it's not just a sense of awe, but something happens into you that changes your life. And I want to say this is the next thing that John talks about. The love of God perfecting us, it begins with abiding, but then it grows into fearlessness. It grows into fearlessness. By, verse 17 and 18. By this is love perfected with us so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not perfect, been perfected in love. Fearlessness, it's going to grow when you reflect and abide and meditate upon this love. When you embrace the embrace of God, you grow in fearlessness. What makes you fear? Why are we such fearful people? There's, there's any number of reasons that we fear, right? I think we fear mostly those things that, we fear that which can hurt us, right? That, that which can damage us in some sort of way, right? Some of you have various fears and phobias, right? Because you're afraid of things that will hurt you, even if they're itty bitty 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 little things, right? In fact, for some of you, it is itty bitty things that really freak you out. Spiders, what's that called? Arachnophobia. People have all kinds of phobias, it's amazing, Right? There's orphidiaphobia, which is a fear of snakes. Necrophobia, which is the fear of death. There's all kinds of fears that we have. <laughs> we could go on and on about the phobias, right? There's olfactory phobia, which is the fear of foul smells. Right? There's dorophobia, the fear of animal fur. Now, that is weird. That has got to be in the DSM-5 somewhere. Like for, in other words, crazy town is what that means. There's frigophobia. Some of you had this morning, this morning, which is the fear of the cold. You fear things that you think could hurt you, though. No matter what it is, whether it's a little bitty spider or tornadoes, you fear things which can hurt you. And if you have one of these fears, you try to control. What do you try to? You, you try to control your environment to avoid them. That's how we, we live in fear. In this case, in regards to judgment, though, we're not afraid of a spider. We're afraid of God. That's what John's talking about here. That's the mega fear in your life. 
that you fear the punishment and the wrath of God. God is that thing, and guess what? That we cannot control. You can crush the spider, you cannot crush God. And therefore, it makes us want to run from him because he is a threat to us in our, our minuteness, in our smallness, in our humanity, and he is greater than us, and therefore we feel threatened by him in his wrath, in his judgment. And that fear is compounded by this, is that we know we deserve punishment. So fear begins by coming up against something that, is, that can do damage to you. In this case, it's something that you can't crush. You can't make him go away. But then fear is compounded when you realize that that thing that I can't control, that that thing that I can't crush, that that thing that I can't push away, ultimately, I deserve his punishment. That's a problem. We fear not because we have encountered something that is um, greater than us. We fear because we've also encountered the lesser in us. It's called sin. It's called brokenness. It's, it's recognizing that we have affronted this powerful God which you cannot control, who can wound you and hurt you and end you. Now, th- there is, if I can illustrate this, the difference between simply understanding that there's something there that you can't control and that can wound you and actually feeling like this person this re- deserves to hurt me. The, let me illustrate it this way. There's a guy who comes into Gallery Row I work in Gallery Row a good bit, um, and there's a guy who comes in there, and um, oddly enough, he's a part of this knitting group, but he always has a, a gun, he has a pistol in his ho- uh, on his side at all times. Now, th- it always kind of unnerves me a little bit, and I'm in the room with something. Now, I know right now, I, many of you are packing heat. I understand that, but at least I don't have to see it. Like half the women in our church have concealed permits. So, like, so we can all, like, we can ignore that fact. They're all in the purse. It's okay. Uh, but this person, it's open carry, and it kind of goes, all right, that person has a loaded gun three feet from me. That upsets me. This is something I can't control. It's something that can hurt me. Now, if I make fun of him for being a part of a knitting group, and suddenly he turns and points the gun at me, Now, mind you, I've just made fun of him, so I probably deserve this. Now, that's a different kind of fear. That's getting a little bit more to the heart of our issue with God. It's not just that God is powerful and he can do damage to you. It's that you have offended him and his wrath is pointed at you. That is the ultimate fear. Fear comes from a sense of exposure and danger, and it's natural, and you want to run and hide. This is the, has been, always been the case for humanity, right? When Adam and Eve first sinned, what do they do? They run and hide because why? They were afraid. What, that's exactly what they said. We are afraid. And since our sin, we have felt exposed. This is why we, we, are, we, we are afraid. But what does it say? Perfect love casts out fear. How does fear, how does fear cast out? By a perfect love. Where do we experience perfect love? I want you to see something this morning. It's seen in in the Greek, in a nerdy place, in the nitty-gritty of this text. That key word perfect for perfect love, it's the Greek word to teletai. At its root is the word telos. It's a very, it's a root word that is that root word is a very um, it has a famous root in the scriptures. Because there's another place in which someone used that same word. We sang it in a song this morning. I remember a couple weeks ago, I was um, at the gym, and there was a guy who was there, and he had the word on, a Greek word on his wrist, to telestai, which is simply, it's the same root word, 
It's simply a, just a new, different grammatical form of this word to teletai. And what that, that Greek word, why is that so significant? Because to teletai, to teletai is the word that Jesus cried out. It's what undergirds the phrase, it is finished. How do you know what perfect love is? How do you know what completed and finished love is? Fulfilled love. You see it. We know it. It's known at the cross. The way you know perfect love is this, is not that God felt loving towards you. It's not that God felt compassion towards you. That's, that's a beginning of love, right? But we know God has perfect love for us. Why? Because his love forced him, caused him to act. It moved. That's perfect love. It's love that changed the scenario for us. And what did he do as we looked at the propitiation last week? He came and he took the wrath that you deserved. So that that gun, the, wrath, the gun of God's wrath is no longer pointed at you. But in fact, it is quite the opposite, right? Because that thing, God himself, which you can't control, and that you know that can destroy you, is now not, that power is not against you, it is for you. And that is the power that is holding on to you. That's the flip of the gospel. Let me, let me put it this way. We hear it, because you think, whenever we hear this idea of the whole like, perfect love driving out fear, we kind of scratch our heads and go, what about Proverbs? Right? The beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of God. So how do we work this out? I thought I was supposed to fear God, but then perfect love drives out fear. Amazing grace, I think, says it best, right? What does it say? It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. The means by which the fact that you know you need the gospel is you fear God. And then the fear of God is relieved by the gospel. That's the dynamic here. And when that God, his power is no longer against you, but it's for you, do you think you can run from his hands? And do you think anything else can hurt you without him knowing about it or being out of his control? There is nothing there is no punishment. There is nothing left for you, right? This is, this is what undergirds the famous text that we love. Romans 8, 38, 39. For I am sure that what? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation are what? Able to separate you from the love of God. Why? Because it is his power. The wrath that used to be pointed at you is now the same power that holds you to himself. And it protects you from all other powers. Now, here's the point. When you understand that about the gospel, all other fears should melt away. Because what God has done is he has taken away the wrath of God. He has taken away death. That's what the gospel has done. That if with God's perfect love, what else is there to be afraid of? Right? To drive it in. That if you are no longer have to be afraid of, the, of God himself, then you don't have to be afraid of a spider or more poignantly to your life, your coworkers, or your children, or your parents, or losing money. What are you afraid of? If I could ask you this, a key question this morning. The next time you're afraid of something, if you could ask this question, is this worth my fear in light of Jesus' de defeat of judgment? 
Because you're facing fears this week. Call them what they are. It's okay to say you're afraid. You're afraid that girl's gonna reject you. You're afraid you're not gonna get married. You're afraid that the finances, the money's gonna run out. You're afraid your children are gonna rebel. Are those fears, are they reasonable in light of what God has done for you? So that's the second place. You grow into perfect love when you grow into fearlessness. You grow, perfect love causes you to grow fearless, to grow confident before God. And it overflows into the third point, that you then overflow with love. The perfect love of God is perfected in us, begins with abiding, it grows into fearlessness, and then it overflows with love. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 19 through 21, drop down there. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God and whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The core of this is interesting is how is perfect love perfected in us? There is a confusing phrase there right at the beginning of verse 12. No one has ever seen God. And we kind of go, wait, I thought Jesus, he came, he's God. And like we see these places where God kind of reveals himself. That's somewhat confusing. What that means is you have not seen God in the fullness of his essence. You, you, in Jesus even, it was his glory was made manifest, but it was still hidden. It was still hidden in flesh. Right? We have a Christmas hymn that talks about that, right? The glory of God hidden in flesh. And because if, if you were actually to see God in all of his essence and all of his glory, you would do what? You would die. You would crumble. You would disintegrate. Our love for others, though, so how do people come to know the love of God? Also, we have this problem. Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. How do we come to know the love of Jesus now? In other words, you become the hands and feet of Jesus. Right, that's why, that's the connection between this phrase. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. In other words, the whole point of that phrase is to say this, is it takes this beautiful turn that while we do not see God in his essence, we can still know he lives and he loves through the work of his people. That the message of the gospel, of the perfected love of God, seen in the work of Jesus on the cross, is seen through his people. Now, John Soss puts it this way. He said, mutual Christian love is the evidence that the unseen God, who was once revealed in his son, is now revealed in his people when? When they love one another. That's the point of this. In other words, people will know God through our love for one another. We reveal who he is in our love for another, his loving nature. It says we are the call here, the overflowing, the place of perfected love in us. When you know that God's love, that you've abided in it, that you've come to a place of fearlessness, that in that fearlessness you begin to live out of it in such a way that you overflow in love for other people. That you can care for other people, you can give your life for them. That they, this is what you are going to do. And in fact, it says that there is an, there is. There is an unstoppable connection between understanding God's love and loving other people. It is incoherent to know God's love and not love others. John says it. I mean, he's, he's got to get to the end of the thing. He goes, I think I've said it a few, like seven or eight times now. I think that should be good enough. They should get it now. That if I love and I hate my brother, then God's love must not be in me. There is an inevitable connection. If I were to walk in here this morning, 
If I were to walk in here this morning, and I would be kind of, I was like, I came in late, and I was all kind of frumpled and like kind of dirt and scuffed up, and I kind of had, I looked a little bit bruised, and I, some people were going to, why are you here, like, kind of like, and I would explain, well, here's what happened. I was, I was down right off the square, and I stepped out, and a Mack truck hit me. He would go, you're a liar. Because when the Mack truck hits you, it does some damage. And the sign that you have been hit with the Mack truck of God's love is there's some damage. And the damage looks like this. You love other people. You love other people. It is inconceivable that you could encounter the power of that love and grace and not be filled with love for others. It is inconceivable. It is incoherent. It is unimaginable. That is the point what John is trying to say. We know that we love God when we love other people. So the question is, do you love people? Introverts, you don't get to get off the hook. I'm one, so I know the struggle. Do you sacrifice for people? What is your giving like? Is the trajectory of your life say, my life is lived to care for other people, or is it simply to promote myself? Are people here for me? For introverts, people are there for you by getting, staying away from you. For extroverts, people are there for you by simply being your audience. Right? Are people there for me, or am I here to give love to them? How quickly do you forgive? Are you there to express the grace of God? Whom have you told about Jesus recently? The sign that you're filled with God, the sign that perfect love has, has filled you up as you love other people. Now let me drive this home this morning as we come to a close. There is an interplay between abiding and fearlessness and love because fear is the greatest barrier to loving sacrificially. It is the greatest barrier. Some of you rejected the call of love to love someone particular in your life because you believe it's too risky. It asks too much of you. To love someone in a sacrificial way would mean you lose power or control. It would mean that you become vulnerable. It means that you might lose comfort or you might grow tired and weary. The reality is that we don't love because we are fearful and scared and insecure people. But the whole point is that, that God has removed all insecurity through the work of Jesus. If he's removed death and the wrath of God, you have nothing else to fear. Are you still living as if you have to hoard things Hoard love, hoard life, hoard provision to yourself because you're so afraid of all these lesser fears. Once you've encountered a love that would enter death for you, then you will encounter a love that will never forsake you. Never. And you have to live out of that love that makes you fearless. It says, it is risky to give this money away to this person. I'm gonna do it anyways. I, it is fearful for me about what my financial world might look like if I do this but I'm gonna do it anyways. Because my, my fears over, and anxieties over my, my financial world are nothing compared to how fearful I was of the wrath of God. And he's taking care of this and everything else. And it's at, when fear is removed from your life that you can begin and are set free to love. Let me put it this way. There is, in, in, in the area of ethics, there's a called, an area called economic ethics. The economics has much to do with ethics. It has much to do with how you live your life. For example, if you ever go to a formerly communist country or maybe a third world country, have you ever been there and had to wait in line? That's a weird experience for an American, isn't it? Waiting in line in a third world country. Because first and foremost, you go, whoa, whoa, no personal space. Second, the word that keeps coming to your mind is deodorant. 
I need some deodorant, or somebody needs deodorant. But the third and most prominent thing that you're thinking when you're in a third world country is this. These people have awful manners. No one is waiting in line. No one is in their row. They're butting in line. They're shoving and jabbing and pushing and all pushing their way to the front. Why is that? Because if you've lived in a third world country and you wait in a bread line, and getting to the front of the line is a matter of life and death, it changes the way you live. It's the ethics. It's called the scarcity of resources. And yet, you, you, are you making the connection? For some of you, you live a loveless life because you're trying to hoard love to yourself. You're trying to hoard everything that makes you feel okay to remove all the fears of your life by hoarding money and your time and so you don't give out to anybody. But yet, God has given you an endless wealth of love. There is no scarcity of resources for the Christian. You live out of the love of God has for you. So here's the question for you. Are you living a personal protection life? Is your, the philosophy of your life personal protectionism? I've got to protect myself. Where in your life is there risky love? Are you risking anywhere? Or are you just nibbling around the edges of discretionary income of love in your life? Is there places where you're risking and, and sacrificing? If you say nowhere, then there, when there, can you begin to comprehend? Have you begun to comprehend the love of God for you? Maybe you haven't. For some of you, the risk is to allow someone in your life who causes you to lose control of your schedule. That would be a hard thing, right? That they would invade your life and they're just not somebody who like lives by your patterns and you're going, man, if I'm gonna love this person, I'm gonna have to be flexible and I don't like to be flexible. For some of you, some of you, it's the risk to engage with someone in a deep way. You've had a wonderful relationship where you guys love, you love to get together and watch football and to, to cut up, but suddenly you, you, God's calling you to actually love this person by asking some more significant questions about their life. Maybe you need to love that way. Some of you need to risk by sharing your faith with a neighbor and risking disdain. Yes, they might disdain you. They might not love you, people pleasers. But there is a wealth of love that you have. Grace involves risk. Love involves risk. For some of you, risky love is to give up your resources such that you give up comforts that you know you have rights to hold on to, but you give them up in order to love other people. Some of you are missing out on the risks of real life. You're living a small, tepid, boring life that has become insulated and small because you're so afraid. The love of God, when it removes fear, opens you up to a risky life where you, God, may call you to the risky places. What did William Wall say? Guys, every man's retreat starts with this, right? Every man dies, but not every man lives. Some of you are refusing to live because you've failed to embrace the love of God has for you and the fearlessness that it gives you. Here we close here. There's a Swiss theologian who's not a very good one. He's kind of a liberal but he has a few things, good things to say. His name is Hans Ernst von Balthasar. He's Swiss, so forgive him. He says this, after a mother has smiled at her child for many days and weeks, she finally receives her child's smile in response. And in that she knows she has awakened love in the heart of her child. James K. Smith says this, in commenting on Balthasar's quote, says this, the smile of a cherishing mother evokes draws out the smile of the infant is a microcosm of a cosmic truth that God's gracious initiative in the incarnation, he first loved us, is the provoking smile of a creator who meets us in flesh, granting even the grace that allows us to love him in return. 
brothers and sisters, abiding is reflecting upon the smile of God who looks down on you and finding in that smile fearlessness and courage that you can then turn and smile upon others. We are loved into loving others. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you um, for a couple of weeks simply just to focus on this sweet truth of your love for us. God, I pray that we would not be satisfied with shallow thoughts of your love, but by lovers, young lovers who are in the stage of the puppy love stage where they just can look at each other's faces and they take in its frame and its shape and they take in the smile. God, I pray that you would renew our love. As John cried out to the church in Revelation, that the church that had lost their love, I pray that we would not lose our love. But by week in and week out and day in and day out, crying out to you, seeking to meditate upon your smile over us, that your love for us would change us, that it would make us who are cowardly, cowardly lions into courageous ones who would give our lives, who would die to love other people. So God, work your perfect love in us so that your perfect love is reflected through us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.